Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I had, if you ever was a devil bought without any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey. People go. The slaves are mine. Their lives are mine. All that they own is mine. I do not know your God, nor will I let Israel go. Who are you to make their lives bitter? Uh, I don't remember how old I was in this memory. I think I was around nine or ten, because my sister's two years older than me. And this story takes place in Sunday school, and I was not with my sister when this happened. So I think she was in an older Sunday school class, and I was without my sister supervising me, maybe for the first time ever in Sunday school, and uh, that's probably why this story turns out the way it does. We were learning some kind of lesson about the ten plagues of Egypt, and I remember the teacher gave all the kids in the class an index card, and whatever we were supposed to do at the front of the card, like the lined side, I don't remember now. But once we finished the learning part of the lesson, if we had extra time, we were supposed to use crayons to draw a depiction of one of the ten plagues on the back side of our note card. Which, that's nice. Having kids drawing little Crayola illustrations of children dying and the river turning to blood and people covered in boils. Good clean fun, the Bible. Not traumatizing at all. Anyway, the teacher had brought a big pan of Rice Krispie Treats to class, and she said that anyone who did the lesson fast enough and got to the part where they drew the picture on the back of their card would get a Rice Krispie Treat. Now, I am a dyed-in-the-wool sweet tooth. I cannot resist delectable sugary confections. There's nothing I won't do for cake. <laughs> and I was determined that I was going to get one of those Rice Krispie treats or die trying. I actually don't remember anything about the lesson itself other than the fact that I had to work with some other kids on it somehow, like we were in a group, and in some way that held me back so I didn't have enough time to make my drawing of torment and suffering falling upon the Egyptians. And I remember having this very brief moment where I was like, it wasn't fair. Like, some of the kids in this class were going to get Rice Krispie treats, and some weren't, through no real fault of their own because some other kids screwed around and held them back or whatever. And I remember thinking, this is bullshit. I mean, not in so many words, but the sentiment was the same. And I resolved in that moment to turn the tables if I could. Since I was being offered a bullshit situation, I was going to give bullshit right back. And so as the teacher came around to look at everybody's drawings, uh, for those kids who'd had enough time to make a drawing, I flipped my note card over to reveal an entirely white surface, the blank backside of my card. 
And the teacher said, oh, you didn't draw anything. And I said, I did too. That's the hailstorm. Everything's completely white because of all the hail. And listener, I got my Rice Krispie treat that day. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. In western New York State, it is spring. The year is 1820. In the seclusion of a wooded grove, he kneels in prayer. A divine experience comes to the boy. Like those of the prophets of old, God appears to him with his beloved son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. From this experience comes the astonishing counsel that the church, as formerly established by the Savior, was not then on the earth. In later divine visitations, he was instructed by the angel Moroni that he was to receive an ancient American record known as the Book of Mormon, containing the Gospel of Christ. Mormonism teaches that trillions of planets scattered throughout the cosmos are ruled by countless gods who once were human like us. They say that long ago on one of these planets, to an unidentified god and one of his goddess wives, a spirit child named Elohim was conceived. This spirit child was later born to human parents who gave him a physical body. Through obedience to Mormon teaching and death and resurrection, he proved himself worthy and was elevated to godhood as his father before him. Mormons believe that Elohim is their heavenly father and that he lives with his many goddess wives on a planet near a mysterious star called Korah. Are you sure? Yes, she was pouring a cup of coffee. I don't believe it. Well, it's true. I thought she was such a good member of the church. Shh, here she comes. Hello, how are you boys? Uh, fine, how are you? Are those the pictures you took of the game last week, Neil? Yeah. Oh, I'd like to see them. Do you have a minute? Sure. Good. I have to take this cup of coffee down to Mrs. Olson. She hasn't been able to get around very well since she broke her ankle, but then I'll be right back. <laughs> She's taking the coffee to Mrs. Olson. And we thought she was going to drink it. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there is something I'd like to talk to you about. Yeah, what is it? Well, it's about this friend of mine. We got to talking a couple days ago, and... And she's going out with this guy. And they're getting, you know, too involved. She insists it's no big deal. And that she's a member of the church and everything. She says it's her life and she can do what she wants. I don't know. I mean, it is her life, isn't it? No. And knowing that we are all literally children of a loving Father in Heaven. And since we are all His children, I guess... You and I are brothers and sisters. So, as your brother, 
I hope you've been able to catch the spirit of what I've been sharing with you. I mean, mainly it came out of the fact that when I was deciding whether to come out, whether to leave the church, because you can't really be in the church in queer. Like, you can try, but it's just not going to work out. This is my friend, Dr. Carrie Prey. She's an author and a professor of writing at Stevens University, and most recently, she edited, along with Jen Lee Smith, an exceptional collection of essays called I Spoke to You in Silence. It's a book that gathers the experiences and perspectives of queer members and ex-members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, better known as the Mormon Church. Like me, Carrie was raised Mormon but later left the religion. We always have a lot of fun when we talk, maybe too much fun, and this conversation was no exception. I was trying to decide what to do, and I was wanted to do research because I am a writer and I read things a lot. But there just there wasn't anything. The only stories that existed were stories of gay white Mormon men, and that's about all. Like they didn't have any other kind of queerness, and nothing that I'd ever seen fit my life or fit my experience. And then when I went to look to see what there was, there was just literally nothing. So we put together a book, so now there's not nothing anymore. I'm so glad there's not nothing anymore. (laughs) It is so trippy being queer in Mormonism. Like I didn't even, it fucked me up so bad. I didn't even realize that I am queer until I was like in my mid thirties. Yeah, I was like, I was already out of Mormonism. And then I was like, oh, oh, like I'm looking back on my life and being like, ah, I didn't just think that these (laughs) girls were like really super close friends. I was in love with them. (laughs) And I just never let myself acknowledge that. (laughs) My idea of friendship changed so much because, yeah, before I was like, it's just what it means to be friends. And like somebody, literally like somebody that I had a crush on said that to me once, this woman did. And and she's like, it's okay. Like that feeling of like that you're in love, that's just what it means when you want to be friends. And I was like, well, I really want to be friends. So (laughs) it's like the most important thing in the world for me to be friends with you. (laughs) I just really want to be friends. I just really like having friends. They're important to me. But like, it's true the church does such a good job of just like strategically making it so that you don't ever realize that you're queer, even when you do know it. Like I was aware that I'd fallen in love with women. I was aware that I was attracted to them, but there was so many, like they keep framing being gay as this weird thing. And usually it was about men, which was part of the problem. And also bisexuality doesn't exist at all in the Mormon worldview. And so like, if you've ever been attracted to a man ever, then you can't be gay. And like, that was such a stumbling block for so long because like, I'm, I'm more gay than not, but I'm somewhere on that bisexual spectrum. And I had been attracted to a couple of guys. Like they were all like super queer homo gay boys <laughs> like the girliest men like they were really really into theater and stuff so into theater <laughs> they just really and decorating and like they have dedicated their life to musical theater <laughs> you gotta respect that <laughs> this one boy that i dated he just really loved fabric he liked to just touch we would go to the fabric store and you just touch the fabric oh that's cute i know it's kind of cute and like i'd never kissed anybody before <laughs> Like, we went up to the mountains, and it was, like, this frozen waterfall. It was the most romantic thing, and, like, that was my very first kiss. It was wonderful. And, like, the next day, he's like, yeah, we're going to have to break up. And I was like, well, why? And he's like, I just look at you, and I do not want to kiss you ever again. (laughs) And I was like, 
this is my first time. I really didn't know what I was doing. I'm sorry. Oh my God. And he's like, I'm, I'm good. I know he lives with his husband in Oregon now. Bless him. He's doing very well. (laughs) So glad. So yeah, like being Mormon and gay is weird or just queer at all. Like, because there's just no nuance at all. Like they have such rigid, like this or this. And then like your life doesn't fit that. Your experiences don't fit that. And so you doesn't like, even though, you know, you should have questioned it or thought about it. Like you just don't, they don't make it easy to it's not it's not convenient to question and so you don't that is such a good way of putting it it's not convenient to question anything about mormonism but really like that probably sounds weird to people who don't have direct experience of the culture but like for real unless you have experienced mormonism like i don't think you can appreciate how true that statement is you just keep doing what you're doing and you don't question anything and it's such a such a strange state it is and like like you're almost like taught like it's uh, this fear of questioning things and like that always seemed a strange part of mormonism to me because if it's true it, it will stand up to your questions so why are you so afraid of me questioning things all of the time? And, like, they really were really afraid. Well, that's, a, that's a thing Mormonism, like, professes, too. Like, like you, you know, you if you want to know about something, you should earnestly question after it. You should ask, and you can trust the answer that you receive in your gut, which, you know, is the Holy Ghost, according to Mormonism. And, like, I did that, and the answer I got was, uh, this is a load of shit. <laughs> Like, it's such a strange paradox because, like, so many of the things that I learned in Mormonism are what actually made me leave Mormonism. Like, I was thoroughly converted to the extent that when I did the things that I was told to do, they told me to leave the church. And so I was like, oh, now this is an act of faith? It felt like the biggest act of faith in the world to leave. It was strange, but it's been wonderful. Like, I haven't, it's the best thing I ever did. I don't know why I didn't leave the church like 20 years ago. My life would be so different. It's good. It's like really good to be able to talk to someone who gets it. Like that conversation I had with that woman that I was in love with, like had gone just a little bit differently. And it hadn't been so easy or it hadn't been so desperate to look for a reason to like explain it away. Like I wanted a reason to explain it away that let me keep her in my life because I could not put go of her because I was deeply in love with her in denial, I guess. I don't know, like if she had just said like, listen, this wouldn't happen unless you were gay. What would, what would happen? <laughs> In my life, would it look different? I don't know. I don't know. But at the time, it was easy. And she's like, that's just what brains do when they want to be, when they want to have a relationship with somebody. And it doesn't matter what that kind of relationship is. It could be anything. It could be friendship. And like, the the weird part about that was it wasn't untrue. You know, like you, you, I have had lots of crushes that like just turned into friendships and they were great and they were great friendship. And I fell in love with her so hard that like, I just didn't think about it at all for like a long, long time after that. Cause I didn't fall in love again for like a long, long time and we were friends and it was fine. And <laughs> anyway, Mormon queer trauma is fun in hindsight when you look back and you're like, child it's so funny to me too, because like looking back on the kind of kid I was like within Mormonism. Yeah. No shit. You're queer Livy. Like, duh. <laughs> Look at this. I used a boy's name when I was a little kid. I refused to wear dresses. I would like scream and freak out if my parents tried to make me like present as 
feminine in any way. I was like, no, that's not me. <laughs> like, I don't know, all of it. Like when I was a teenager, I, I like wore 90s boys fashions where I would have like slightly sagging cargo pants. This is embarrassing to admit now because like <laughs> the 90s were not good. Everybody knows this but you. Oh yeah. And I had like short, short hair. Like, I, you know, like everybody had a pixie cut in the 90s, you know, so I had a pixie cut which passed as a girl's haircut back then, but I wore, like, dude clothes. <laughs> like, this would look amazing on you, though, by the way. I'm just envisioning it. It was the queerest thing ever. Being in my, I can see it. I, I see it. I didn't see it in myself because I didn't allow myself to see it. Uh-huh. And I just had all this angst because I was also attracted to boys. I'm probably more attracted to men than to women. Well, okay. My weird spectrum of attraction. This is why I never figured out that I was queer, like in addition to being raised Mormon. It's also because like, I'm attracted to people based on who they are for the most part. Like Uh gender does not matter. Like physical, like the way they look doesn't really matter to me. It's just like, I get very attracted to people because of their personalities. And and especially, this is weird, but especially um, I get really attracted to people who are really good at something. Like if someone is amazing at something, I'm like, holy shit, they're like the hottest person in the world to me. But when it's pure physical stuff, it's a very narrow spectrum of humanity. And that spectrum is 1970s prog rock twink. (laughs) So the only time I'm just like, it's purely physical and like entirely sexual. It's like a scrawny little musician boy. (laughs) And that's all. So since the only people who I was like looking at and having a physical attraction to were all male, that I just was like, oh, I guess I'm straight. And then I had all this angst where I was like, why don't men like me? Why aren't men into me? Because I look like a lesbian. (laughs) That's why. Uh Men look at me and they're like, oh, she just wouldn't be into me. (laughs) (laughs) I get that. It's so funny to me. (laughs) All the girls everywhere are like, hey. Okay, now that I'm in my 40s, young women hit on me. Oh, they love you. What is happening? I don't know. It's so weird and it weirds me out sometimes. I'm like, no. I don't know if you want a sugar mama, but no. (laughs) I'm good. I'm not going to actually go for like a 21-year-old woman. It's flattering for sure, but it's so funny to me that they'll like go out of their way. But they're the ones that are hitting sometimes and you're just like, why? Yeah. It's so funny. I'm like, what is this? And I, I asked my sister, I was like, what? Why are suddenly like women in their 20s hitting on me and trying to give me their number and shit? What is this? Like, like I'm not hot. You are hot. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not like an, I'm not like an ogre, but I'm not hot either. Like, I'm just a very average looking person. I'm like, I don't understand this. And my sister was like, you know what it is? They're all broke and they can't figure out how to make it in the world and are smart enough to realize you've got your shit together. And if they... <laughs> can land you as a sugar mama then they'll be set up i was like oh fuck you're right that's what it is it's true there's something that's, that's very attractive about older women i was attracted to older women too for a long time that was another one of those things that made me be like oh well i just want to be friends <laughs> i'm attracted to like really girly men and really manly girls that's like, that's my entire range that's the venn diagram overlap yeah <laughs> manly guys no no I, I like that's like the biggest turnoff ever like men that are beautiful in traditional manly ways i'm like meh and like even like really girly girls i'm like meh but like manly girls <laughs> i love manly girls <laughs> and girly men i love girly men <laughs> i won't date very many more girly men because it turns out most of them 
are gay. Usually, yeah. Yeah, and it turns out that can be a problem. When me and my ex-husband, my now ex-husband, we both came out at the same time publicly. He's gay. My kids, we had to tell our kids that we were gay. We had to tell my family that we were gay. And like without a single missed person, like every single person we told, they were always like, well, Carrie, of course, but Steve, that's a surprise. <laughs> They're like, we always knew you were the gayest. It was, we were so like relieved when you found Steve because finally it's a dude. I love that. Yeah. Good time. I still remember my daughter just being like, dad, you, of course you mom, but dad, dad is a surprise. I'm glad you two found each other though. Because what a great couple of people to come out to, to be like, uh, I think I'm actually gay. I'm like, no way, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Yeah, like, it worked out okay. Like, we were so clueless at the time, and we had this little lavender marriage that we didn't even fully comprehend. But, like, Mormons get married when they're, like, tiny little babies, and they get married with literally zero sexual experience at all. Like, some of the guys that I dated strictly believed that, like, all physical infection, including hand-holding and kissing, belonged in marriage. And, like, it was just so normalized at, like, when I was going to BYU that there shouldn't be physical affection while you're dating. That's only marriage. And so, like, it doesn't even occur to you to think about it until you're married. And then it's kind of both too late, but also you don't know any different. You're like, I guess this is just what it is, and it's normal. And then, like, years and years later, you go, like, oh, wait, <laughs> that was not <laughs> normal. But it takes time. And I think like that's kind of I, I always got this since they always wanted everybody safely married off because once you're you're safely married off you're trapped and you can't leave the church or something like looking back I don't understand that seems kind of disturbing to me yeah there's a there's a lot of stuff about Mormonism that's uh looking back you're like oh that's that's weird. You're like, that's kind of messed up. Yeah. <laughs> My agent really wants me to write like a nonfiction, like a memoir type thing about Mormonism. And I don't, I don't know. I'm, I'm really on the fence about doing it because I feel like no one will care because like, I don't have any kind of nonfiction credentials. Like, you know, I don't have a degree in anything. I'm not a professor like you are. I have nothing to go on. I, I technically don't even have a high school diploma. I don't have a high school diploma either. Actually, <laughs> we have this in common. I dropped out of high school. But when, when we were trying to um, to get promotional stuff together for The Prophet's Wife, I was writing a bunch of essays and stuff, and like the publicist at the publisher was trying to get the essays picked up somewhere, and I wrote an essay about the prevalence of prescription addiction within Mormonism, and um, how it kind of goes hand in hand with, like, like when you go to Utah, like when you go to Salt Lake City, there are three kinds of billboards along the freeway. Plastic surgery. Yeah, plastic surgery. Pornography. Anti-pornography. Like, we're addicted to porn and you need to get help. Yeah, that's the other one. And the third kind is help with pers like if you're addicted to prescription medication. And the reason why these three things are, are like on everyone's mind in Utah, for those who don't know, like Carrie, you you know this, but <laughs> but for those who don't know, is because like the whole premise of Mormonism is that if you live a perfect enough life, you can become a god in the afterlife. Which I'm sure sounds really weird to people who are not Mormons, but it's not any weirder than anything else, like in any other religion, like any other theology. It's not, yeah, it's not even weirder that other doctrine is like on the first full moon after, or the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox, we're going to have a ritual where we drink blood and eat body. Like, that's just Easter. All religions are weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... People might find it, you know, shocking to think that there's a, a an American religion out there that professes that people can become gods, but really, like, where do gods come from? They had to come from somewhere, yeah. And the Bible is very clear that other gods exist besides Yahweh. We think of this as a monotheistic religion, and yet it's a monotheistic religion that 
acknowledges that other gods exist too. It just wants you to, it expects you to only worship one of the many gods. So, okay, so where do gods come from? Like that's Mormonism, you know, seeks to present an answer to that question among, you know, other questions. So it's not really that, like, I don't think it's that weird to have a religion that's like, you can become a god. But that's an enormous amount of pressure on people. Like, people are born into Mormonism hearing that, you know, this this mythology of, like, you're, you chose to come and inhabit an earthly body with a Mormon family so that you could learn how to become elevated to godhood after you die. Like, you must be flawless in order to be worthy of becoming a god. You are born with such an incredible amount of pressure and responsibility, mm -hmm. like an impossible amount, that no one, no human mm -hmm. being can live up to that shit. I don't care how good you are. I don't care how perfect you are. What human is worthy of becoming a god? It breaks them. So it's just this unsustainable amount of pressure that that Mormons face every single day. And then it typically comes out in the form of pill addiction because the word of wisdom prevents, which is, for those who don't know, the word of wisdom is, is like a religious code, essentially, mm -hmm. that dictates like what you can put into your body and what you cannot as a Mormon. Most people are familiar with the fact that Mormons don't drink alcohol or caffeine, but there's, uh, there's other stuff. Like in the word of wisdom too. The whole word of wisdom is actually so complicated and, and like that's not actually what people do with it but like the actual text is fascinating. It is really fascinating and here's the thing I don't get. Why are Mormons against weed? Because it says, it never says in the word of wisdom that you cannot ingest an intoxicating substance. It's just very specific about the kinds of substances you can't ingest and it says every good herb of the earth is for man's use for like medicine and enlightenment. Hello? Smoke a bowl, Mormons. Jesus. <laughs> You'll be fine. It'll solve all your problems. And I, I do actually know a lot of Mormons that will smoke weed, but won't do alcohol or caffeine. Like, cause, and they, they can say, well, it's medical. And I feel like that's actually why it was important to them to pass medical marijuana and not recreational marijuana. They're like, then we can all have it because it's medicine. <laughs> Yeah, Mormons are wild. They're wild. And like, the thing is, like, even if you are successful at doing every single thing right and never breaking a single rule ever, you're just miserable and that will break you. Even if you actually have done pretty well at rising to the pressure that they've put on you, like, it still breaks you. And you then you start to get to a certain point and you're like, why? Why Why did we? What was the point of all of this? It seems really weird in hindsight that, that you would push yourself so hard for so long for something that you're never, ever going to see in this life at all like it's weird one of the main factors that led to my leaving the church and and my my family like my roots in the church my ancestors go all the way back to Fayette like before even Kirtland if folks out there if you cannot follow what I'm saying and if you want to know you can read my novel The Prophet's Wife it details like the founding of the church great novel oh thank you <laughs> My ancestors joined the church um, when there were only, when there were like fewer than a thousand members. That's how far back my family has been in Mormonism. And it, it was a big deal for me to just decide, like, this is not for me. Because it, that was my whole family culture. Right. We were Mormons. And it was important to us, you know? Like, that history of what our ancestors had gone through, like, the persecutions that, that we had faced and everything... That was a big deal. So for me to be like, I just don't want this. I don't want it. Like, I, I felt in some right. way like I was kind of betraying my ancestors, which was a weird feeling. Right. Like, it was hard to, to cope with at first. Well, and like, it's just hard because Mormonism requires so much of your time and gives structure to your days and your weeks and your family functions. That, like, if your entire family is Mormon and you leave Mormonism, you're essentially leaving your family. Like, whether or not the, the family is nice to you and kind to you and accepting of you leaving, 
you still are not participating in the thing that gives shape to their entire life. And that means that you're alienated from most of that. And that is, that's tricky. You, it's, it's tricky to realize that, yes, one, I can function outside of that. But to do it, you have to be willing to give up everybody and everything that you know. You don't know that there's going to be anybody on the other side. You're giving up everything that you know when you leave. And it's scary. It, it was, it was, it required more faith than anything I've ever done in my life to leave. I agree with that. I think it, it did for me too. And it, it really required me looking at the version of an afterlife that Mormonism was presenting of saying like, this is what you're working for. You're working to become elevated. Well, I mean, as a woman, I was working to become a baby making machine in the afterlife where I would just yeah. shoot out spirit babies for all eternity because that's the only thing women do. Which sounds terrible. <laughs> That's the only thing women are good for on earth or in heaven is to just make more people. Like, more babies. So gross. And like, I think that was when the first huge fissure I had with the church started is because I was, you know, I was willing to take it on faith. Like the people that taught me Mormonism were, were good people and I trusted them. And like, and they, they said that like, when you're a woman, motherhood's the most fulfilling thing, et cetera, et cetera. So I did all the things I was supposed to, but like, it turns out when you're a woman, you aren't automatically born with every single skill that you need to be a mother and like it turns out that when somebody says you have all these talents but the only ones that matter are all these things that you're actually really not that good at but we don't everything else is an embarrassment it's like it's it felt like erasure it felt like nobody i didn't actually have individual worth i didn't actually have any sort of divinity that was to myself and it was this cold sort of terrible feeling that like the afterlife would be only this i would the afterlife would be nothing to do with me and all I would be doing was this for eternity like that's I started to be like eh, this doesn't really sound great Mormon heaven really sounds kind of messed up yeah. <laughs> yeah I was talking to a friend one yeah and he was like well what if Mormon heaven is actually hell and they're just like trying to spin it oh, yeah. like, you have to be straight and you have to be like a mom like a million times over and you have to like you have to be a girl and you have to all these other things or a boy like you have to be whatever you have and like it just sounds terrible and I and I thought about that and I was like listen because Mormons actually don't believe in hell either the worst place you can go is this place that's supposed to be like thousands of times better than earth or whatever that's like the worst place right right that was the thing for me and like then the best place is this place with all the babies and just like having babies like, I don't know like maybe I want to go to the celestial kingdom instead that sounds better yeah no thanks I'm fine with the celestial <laughs> kingdom and that that was really like that was what what pulled the ripcord for me I was like I don't want to become a goddess if being a goddess means all I do is just like endlessly be pregnant and give birth and have to mother a bunch of fucking soul children like ew that sounds terrible so needy like thousands of like spirits like all the time like I, no why is that so fun yeah so many diaper changes my god and be invisible because it's not like Mormons Mormons believe in like a heavenly mother but they don't ever talk to her or about her that's like somehow so shameful and we'll get you thrown out of the church and stuff and you're like okay well it's the center of your religion and so you just want me to be silent and quiet and giving birth all the time and then like you're surprised when I want to leave I don't know it's that's and I don't want to go to the celestial kingdom to spend eternity with my family because my family <laughs> like I do. There, there are some people in my family who I love very much and I'm so glad they're my family. And then there's everyone else in my family. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, like, like we can paper over, we can try to put this veneer of Mormon perfection over everything, but this family's fucked 
up. Like my family, I don't want to spend eternity with them in a stupid white room that's like the, <laughs> the celestial room in the temple. Wearing a weird baker's hat. Like, no, I'm good. I don't want to do that. I was like, celestial kingdom's fine with me. I'm going to apostatize. Peace. I'm out of here. <laughs> like, ah. So if I take the lowest kingdom, I can go. Gotcha. <laughs> Anyway, right? Yeah. Go to the Telestial Kingdom, we'll smoke pot and eat things and like do all our worldly stuff. Like I was like, I'm fine with that. I don't know who wants to be a god, that's too much fucking responsibility. I mean it like, yeah, like it really does sound stressful. Like I don't understand. Yeah, like you and like to be like nobody can pray to anybody except for me. Like I if I was God, I would not I'd be like, go talk to your dad. I don't <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> Listen, stop bothering Heavenly Mother with this nonsense. Heavenly Mother needs her happy juice right now. Go talk to your daddy. <laughs> That's the real reason we can't pray to Heavenly Mother anymore. She needs her her mommy happy juice. She's like, listen, I just gave birth to like thousands of babies. Like, I'm on some drugs right now. Like, you guys just like... The highways in heaven are paved with billboards for pill addiction because Heavenly Mothers everywhere are like, oh, fuck. Why did I sign up for this eternity? <laughs> it's too much. Last year, there was a big movement on Twitter, at least. I don't know about other social media. People were just like not keeping quiet. Like Mormons believing people still in the church were not keeping quiet any longer about Heavenly Mother and were coming out and, and like... Like, talking about her very directly and it made a lot of people very uncomfortable and it was kind of nice to see i liked it which was delightful to watch like yeah the chaos lover of my heart was like <laughs> elmo fire moment i have such mixed feelings about mormon heavenly mother because like on the one hand i love that it's a faith that has a feminine divine at all because like a lot of other christianity just pretends like that doesn't exist and we don't talk about that and, and like mormonism gets grief for being polytheistic when it's really like it's not any more polytheistic than the bible is like it's very you know like the, the bible has all sorts of weird stuff going on the mixed feelings come in with the heavenly mother though because do i want to believe in a version of the the feminine divine that says the feminine divine is controllable and quiet and giving birth and fits this patriarchal power structure and has no characteristics or individuality at all is just literally completely nothing but quiet and silence like it's just not a very compelling version of female divinity and when i was first looking for a female divine myself because i was like there's got to be something out there and it was not hard to find all sorts of art and research and imagery and mythology of the female divine and the problem with it was that it was wild and powerful and uncontrollable and like nothing at all like mormon heavenly mother was supposed to be because she was just supposed to be much more well-behaved than that, I think. And after a while, that just starts to really be not compelling to me anymore. Like, I, I, I didn't ever do anything wrong for so many decades of my life. Like, way too many. Until I finally was just like, what was the point of all of this? I was like 37 when I finally left the church. And I was just like, okay, well, we're just gonna go wild now. <laughs> We finally have decided that, like, in fact, no, there was no point to all of these years of strife and anxiety and angst and feeling sad and exhausted all of the time when we could actually just be being gay and having fun, like... Be gay, do crimes. Yeah. <laughs> 
And they're like, oh no, you're not gonna go to the Special Kingdom. And it's like, oh no, what a threat. Oh, I'm gonna be in the pot smoking world, apparently. Like, that's fine. How is that a fucking threat anyway? Oh no, you won't get to be exalted to the Celestial Kingdom. Like, ugh, fuck the Celestial Kingdom. It sounds boring. It really <laughs> does. Like, that's all they do is have babies in the Celestial Kingdom. It's like, what are they? <laughs> it reminds me of, you know how there's always like, okay, I know you, you follow... You or at least you you see a lot of the the tweets from that. What's that account? Oh, I know her first name's Aubrey, but she's that woman who basically just like retweets screen captures of like revolting stupid shit men say like on uh, dating apps and stuff. I love her account. There's always there's like this particular brand of man out there who's hyper focused on reproduction. And they're like, oh, you women, you feminists with your hairy armpits and everything. I would never reproduce with you. It's like, oh no. Ooh. <laughs> Don't threaten us with a good time. It's like, you mean if I have hairy armpits, you'll stay away from me? <gasps> oh no. Oh, you have no value in reproduction because of your age or because of your feminism or whatever. And it's like, dude, that, that's what the Celestial Kingdom reminds me of. Is like those guys, if they designed heaven, were the only thing they can think to do with their entire existence <laughs> for all of eternity is to shoot some jizz into somebody and make some babies. Like, you can't think of it. You don't want to learn how to play guitar? You don't... <laughs> You don't want to write a poem? That's it? All you can think to do with your life? Just the jizz. Just the jizz. Yeah. Hats off to people who want to be parents. You're a parent, I know. Anybody who, like, wants to to raise children and finds fulfillment in that, good on ya. I, I, my sister has always wanted to be a mom, and she's an incredible mom, and I'm so happy for her that she gets to be a mom. But, like, I never, ever, ever, ever wanted to. And it astounds me when I encounter people who think that, like, the highest iteration of humanity is to reproduce. <laughs> it's just like, dude, cells do that in a Petri dish. Like, yeah, and, like, there's weird paradox to it, too. Like, when I had, I had babies, and, like, I'd been taught, like, you know, your, your goal in life is to be a good mother and have lots and lots of babies. And I had one baby, and I realized how much babies need and I also realized, like, it is actually not humanly possible to be a good mother to, like, 15, 20 children. Like, that is not actually really, like, a thing that's possible to do at all. And so that was a weird paradox where I was like, I've been told to have lots of babies and be a good mother. I can only do one of those things. And so, like, I only had two kids, which was sort of scandalous in Mormon circles, I think, a little bit at the time. I mean, I could at least blame infertility. It, like, excused my wicked sin of not reproducing a lot. My first baby was an in vitro baby second baby not sure where she came from i had a dream because because like we were infertile like we were like not just gay like we were both gay but we were super infertile too like each of us like steve on his own was super infertile and i was infertile and they like were looking at our lab results and they're like okay on a scale of zero to 200 your chance of ever conceiving a baby naturally is zero <laughs> and we were like okay they're like you are only gonna have a baby through in vitro so I had my first baby through in vitro and it was a wild in vitro trip. Like we went, I was so young. I was the youngest patient they'd ever had at the London Women's Clinic. And like I was teaching a study abroad class because it was so much cheaper to do IVF in the UK. And so it was, it was a hiking class. We were like hiking 20 miles every day over mountains all the time. I was hallucinating my ass off like I was on all these drugs because <laughs> like they really mess with your brain when you do IVF it's rough like the things they do are rough and so I did that and I was like okay well if I ever am gonna have another baby like that's just really hard and also like just it takes a lot of energy to be a good parent and and so I I was gonna be done after that first in vitro and then like I 
randomly ended up pregnant one day and I did not literally have any idea how this happened. Like it was so confusing to me. Like how did, how did I get pregnant? Not only am I completely infertile. I, I mean, I didn't know back then that we were gay, but like, I was just like, I don't even remember. Did we even, and I maybe, I don't like, I was so confused. Like, how did this happen? And I had a dream. I have, I've had all sorts of crazy dreams, but this one was funny where I dreamed that an alien came and told me that, oh yeah, what happened is we abducted you and inseminated you artificially. And like, that's how you got pregnant. And in the dream, I was like, thank God that explains everything. (laughs) (laughs) Finally less confusing now. Everything makes sense. That is so much more plausible than what I was thinking. Like, I was, like, thinking my body just randomly decided to create, like, a human. I don't, parthenogenesis in humans, maybe? I don't know. But she does look a lot like me. My daughter does. <laughs> she does. I love that story. Your stories are incredible. You uh, you are the best follow on Twitter. Endlessly entertaining. You're just a natural storyteller, which is, you know, it, it, this podcast ostensibly is about storytelling. Kinda. I mean... <laughs> It's not really Those about are the best kind of podcast. I love your your natural instinct for story, which and you manage to make it come across so well in these Twitter threads you do. Like I don't know, I vividly remember speaking of your in vitro thing and hallucinating on a hike, but that story you had about meeting yourself on on a hike while you were yes. on these in vitro drugs. She was scary. Oh, just horrifying and entrancing, and and it felt big and important like as I was reading that story I was like this is a real experience and and the way she conveys it is so uh raw and so honest that it's like you can't stop reading it it's wonderful you're like and it's an essay about hallucinating demons okay (laughs) yeah that was wild because that was the scariest thing I think I've ever like the scariest sort of I, I don't know what to call it a ghost encounter probably Sometimes I might have ghosts, I feel like, in the house. It's more like you see something out of the side of your eye or something's kind of funny and you're like, oh, maybe somebody's here. And, like, it's, like, normally what ghosts are, like, like super low-key and not even really a thing to think about. But, like, this one was, I was on so many drugs and having such a bad reaction because they didn't know what to do with me because I was so young. My ovaries, they told me, were measuring about the length of a soccer ball each one of them in my my stomach I was throwing up all of the time they're like and I was like I'm having these weird dreams and they're like well we're really messing with your brain we don't know what's gonna happen if these things could happen you could have a stroke you could start to have all these other things and like one of the things that happened was the the hallucinating that I did and I was on this 20 mile hike and like yeah I started to see myself and it was me but it was like an evil me and she was telling me to do things and it was weird. It was a weird experience. So yeah, that was that was one. Hallucinations can feel extremely real. And and yet at the same time, sometimes, you know, usually, you know, hopefully if, if your mental health is more or less intact, you know it's not real. And yet it feels like the most real thing ever. Like I was completely aware when this was happening that like, I mean, it wasn't even like other drugs where you like literally see things. It was more like you almost see them. They're so vivid and they're happening, but they're, you know, they're happening in your mind, but there's something very, very, very vivid about them. And like, you can taste the things that you're tasting are real and you can feel the ripples on your skin. And like, it's, it's, it's emotionally intense, even if you know that like, yeah, no, I'm not really seeing myself and she's not really telling me to like kill these people. And she's not really telling me like all these things, but I feel them. 
I'm feeling the weird bloodlust. I'm feeling the weird ambition that I don't understand. I'm feeling this weird, cruel sense of you could have power over people if you wanted to. That was just so strange. And like that, that particular hallucination, I wouldn't have thought of at all if it hadn't been for the fact that when we got to the Abbey, they kept telling us all the stories of the people who had owned the Abbey. And it was the same story over and over again, where they would have this image of themselves as somebody powerful and somebody who could do these great glory, glory, like glory to God kind of things, these just immense, powerful, and all they would have to do is something. And they all did something terrible. Like the Abbey was founded when the one king's brother died. And then like the next guy was like, he became rich when he married his wife and then his wife mysteriously dies. And then there was another guy that like completely raised this entire village to the ground just because he's like, I want to have something to erect that is glory. Was there a word for like gloriful? <laughs> That's not a word. That's the word I keep wanting to say. It's not a real world word. Glorious. <laughs> Yeah, like just something like this massive tribute to my own greatness and also God, but like my own thing. And it was it was this just the same story over and over again. And I just started to feel like this person that looks like me was maybe somebody that lived in the woods, something that lived in the woods and whispered weird temptations to people and got them to do strange things by talking to them with their own voice. It was such a strange experience and I've never had anything else like it in my life, thank God. <laughs> I'm never going to do in vitro again, so hopefully I will not. <laughs> what a trip. I wonder, you know, we don't really, science has not yet figured out what the mind is, what consciousness is, or even where it resides. Right. We know it's related to our brains, but not entirely. I wonder if, you know, maybe maybe Jung was right and other people like him where it's this sort of external substance that we're always kind of moving through. And I wonder if maybe... You know, you passed into the mind of that place that had all that, you know, like violence and ambition as its thoughts. And because of, you know, the state you were in with all these drugs you were on messing with your your brain, that it like tuned the antenna of your of your neurology into this other mind that you could pick up like it's so weird it's so trippy to think about like like consciousness reality is so much bigger and stranger it is it's wild and consciousness is wild and like maybe consciousness is happening all of the time like there was just a study about crows that they're like super conscious like humans like one of the most frustrating things when you read the science of consciousness is that they always tend to define it in ways that are superhuman and like they not like superhuman but like very human like they just like consciousness can only be human and if consciousness doesn't look like human consciousness it's not consciousness but this is it's a false dichotomy to say that something is either human or an it it's either it's either human or it's an object yeah and like it, it also it's tricky and like if you look at like plant lives like they have consciously behaving things without a brain you can identify but lots of animals have thoughts yeah. and brain-like activities that happen in their fingers and their toes in their 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 limbs and there's other sorts of like science that says maybe consciousness happens in the quantum field maybe consciousness doesn't happen in our mind it happens outside of our mind which was always really interesting to me as somebody i have I have skin grafts from another complicated story but um <laughs> so the skin grafts sometimes when they hurt they don't hurt on the skin. They they hurt two inches outside oh, of the skin in the air. And like you you, you want to scratch them, but like the itches in the air. 
outside oh. of the grafts. And like part of that is clearly injury, nerve injury. The the nerve is doesn't function anymore because they clopped it off. But it also makes you like wonder like why is my mind and my body like what is my thought? Like thoughts are electrical activities possibly sure if we want to reduce them that way. And if they are electrical, if they are existing on that level, why would they not why would they be confined by my skull? Is my skull like trapping it all in there? Why is consciousness not bigger than than my body? And there's good scientific reasons to think there's not, but the science gets really frustrating because science is the way science works is you eliminate variables until you have a question you can answer. And some things are so complex and so interrelated that you can't eliminate variables. And because you can't eliminate variables, the scientific temptation is to say there's nothing there. Um, but that's right. not necessarily true. It's, it's, there's something there. It's just not something that can be measured in a way that includes zeros and ones. And if we, that very binary thinking is a limitation of science sometimes, because sometimes the answer is not one or zero or male, female, and like in plants can have thousands and thousands of different genders and they do fine. Like it's, it's not as simple as anybody wants it to be. And we can do a lot of things with science. I love science makes it sound like I'm trashing science like i'm a i teach scientific communication and science is great for what it does yeah. it, it's allowed us to have a, like we're talking on our computer because of science which is awesome but it has limitations and the, the limitations are you can only get questions to answers where you can eliminate variables and sometimes that's not possible sometimes you lose the essence of the thing you're measuring when you're eliminating the variables to try to find it well said. And and coming from a professor of science communication, like, you know, what better person in the world to <laughs> to comment on that than someone like you who's dedicated your whole professional career to trying to get people to understand how science works and how we talk about it in the most effective ways. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like sometimes scientists look at me sideways like you're a weird writing person. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs>
During my conversation with Carrie, I mentioned a whole group of essays I wrote in early 2022 when we were preparing marketing material for The Prophet's Wife. None of these essays ended up being published in any magazines or websites or whatever, and I eventually just put them all up on Medium, where each one was read by, like, five people, as seems to be a common theme for everything I write under my real name. Anyway, I wanted to close out this episode with one of those essays. It's the one I'm most proud of out of the whole group, and I really wish it had been published by some magazine. But it bears directly on so much of what Carrie and I talked about today, so I thought it would be a good time to share it with you. This piece is called... All things compounded in one, and I hope you enjoy it. One of my earliest memories takes place in the basement playroom of the house where I spent my early childhood in Rexburg, Idaho, one of the strongholds of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the religion into which I was born and which my ancestors helped create. In this memory, I am looking down with dismay, almost with horror, at a baby doll in a toy cradle. There's an adult in the room. It's not my mother, nor is it my father, which leaves one of my many aunts or uncles or one of my grandparents. Whoever the adult is, they're trying to get me to pick up the doll and play with it. Mother it. I don't want to do it, and they're growing frustrated with me, maybe a little angry. I am two or three years old. Even when I was a baby myself, I wanted nothing to do with babies. I found their sudden, high-pitched noises frightening and unpredictable. They made me feel anxious, not only because of their unpleasant sounds, but because of the strange, gravitational force that surrounded them, a cultural pressure that seemed to be pushing me inexorably toward babies even though I preferred to stay far away from them. It didn't matter where I turned within my small, homogeneous world. Because I was a girl, I wouldn't be permitted to escape my fate. Not for long. I was meant to have babies, created by God for the express purpose of using my body to make more human beings, and I had better get used to that fact, because nothing could change it. I was a strong-willed person from the start, however. Around the age of three or four, I began to display clear preferences in the way I presented myself to the world. I rejected anything girly, no dresses, no ruffles, no pink, and insisted that I would dress the way my male cousins did, in jeans or Oshkosh corduroy overalls with plaid shirts. I was very proud of my black and white saddle shoes, miniature imitations of the Oxfords fancy gentlemen wore in old movies. My mother did convince me to wear dresses to church on the grounds that it would be irreverent for a girl to dress like a boy, but church was the only place where I would consent to a classically feminine presentation. Around that age, I began identifying with male characters in books and movies, too, pretending to be these characters for weeks on end, never answering to my real name, but only the name of the identity I'd assumed. I never pretended to be any female character. The very thought repulsed me, for it was the 1980s and the broader culture wasn't terribly far ahead of the Latter-day Saints when it came to depicting women as independent, fully actualized people. In most media, female characters were thoroughly passive. They had no stories of their own. They existed as motivation for male characters who got to embark on adventures and be heroes. The message I was absorbing from movies and TV was clear. Men had real lives, and women were for men to use as props or rewards or something worse. To be a man was to be alive, active, real. To be a woman was to scarcely exist at all. Within my culture that is, the Latter-day Saint faith as it existed then in eastern Idaho, 
the picture of womanhood was even more grim. There was only one kind of woman in my immediate world, and she stayed home raising children. Men had careers, sometimes very interesting careers, like my father, who was a professional artist. Men made things happen in the world. They made things. Paintings and music and buildings and medicine and the rockets that flew to space. Women only made babies. That was all God wanted women to do, according to my family's religion, according to every person I knew. And in this culture of rigid expectation, this featureless landscape that offered me neither choice nor personal interest, I was growing more belligerent and anxious, more certain by the day that no matter how many songs I was made to sing in primary school proclaiming that all I wanted was to become a mommy, the very last thing I would do with my life was become a mommy. When I was five or six years old, my grandparents and aunts and uncles had begun commenting on my alarmingly masculine tendencies. It had been okay to let my unfeminine habits slide when I had been a toddler, but now that I was approaching school age, my extended family warned my parents that they needed to teach me how to be a proper girl. I was growing in the wrong direction, and the whole family was concerned for my eternal soul. If I didn't grow up to marry a righteous man, get sealed to my husband in the temple, and have lots of children, I wouldn't spend eternity in the celestial kingdom, the highest order of heaven. If my parents had been more righteous themselves, our family's dire predictions about my eternal fate probably would have scared them into compliance. Fortunately for me, my parents weren't willing to take the matter any further than forcing me to look like a girl whenever we were inside a church. May whatever God exists bless them for standing strong in defense of their daughter. It couldn't have been easy for them, raising a gender non-conforming child within a culture whose very raison d'etre is rigidly defined gender roles. I have no doubt that my mom and dad suffered in their own ways for their defense of my free spirit, but despite whatever social discomfort it caused them, they allowed me to be myself Monday through Saturday. I suppose it isn't surprising, though, that my mom and dad stood up for my self-expression. They were both rebels themselves, or tried their best to be. My dad struggled to define his own identity within our restrictive culture. Some of his beliefs about what was right and wrong never quite meshed with Latter-day Saint traditions, though he contorted himself in mental knots trying to make his heart and his faith sing in some ragged harmony. When it came to appearance and behavior, Dad pushed the boundaries of what the culture allowed, growing his hair just a little too long, dressing just a little too hippie-ish, reveling just a little too much in secular rock and roll. My mother wasn't exactly an outsider to the religion. Her family had converted when she'd been eight years old, and she'd been baptized as a child. But mom had grown up in the Seattle area, where even the most conservative Mormons are astonishingly liberal compared to those in Rexburg. Mom had been raised by a divorced mother who'd found self-actualization in having a career, and my grandmother's life of independence had made quite an impression on my mom. She may have been a member of the church, but mom wasn't feminine enough for Rexburg or for her in-laws, and almost no one in my father's family ever really accepted her. She was always an outsider, watched with keen mistrust. In my late twenties, after I'd left the church, mom told me with a laugh how my father's parents had accused her once of being a secret lesbian because she'd only had two children. What my father's family never knew was that both he and my mother were secret proponents of zero population growth, a social movement that reached its peak of popularity in the 1970s. 
People like my parents, who believed families should have a maximum of two children, were considered such an existential threat to our religion that the church embarked on a media campaign to fight back against the idea, culminating in a truly ridiculous musical called Saturday's Warrior, which was a smash hit in Mormon-majority cities throughout the 70s and 80s, even getting a direct-to-video release in 1989 and a remake as a true feature film in 2016. Armed with their personal convictions about responsible reproduction, yet still bearing the weight of cultural expectation, my father bought my mother a flashy sports car, which she used to drive once a month from Rexburg to a family planning clinic in Idaho Falls, some 30 miles away, to pick up her prescription for birth control pills. Even if she could find a doctor in Rexburg who was willing to prescribe the pill to a married woman, she didn't trust that man not to gossip about it. It wasn't many years after I was born that the pressure of all these expectations became too much for my father to bear. Mormonism is religion that expects perfection. Its foundational premise is that if we only live exactly the right kind of life with exactly the right kind of faith and exactly the right kind of obedience, we will ascend to godhood in the afterlife. If you're a man, anyway. If you're a woman, you get to be a goddess, which means you'll give birth to an endless parade of spirit babies and never do much else with your eternity. The burden of perfection is one few people can bear without consequences. My father was no god. He was human, and he was losing his battle to live an error-free life. Plagued by guilt, he turned first to prayer, but when his mental health didn't improve, he turned to the local doctor. The doctor prescribed opiates. I hardly need to detail what went wrong from there. It's a story too many American families already know. Suffice to say, by the time I was eight years old, my parents were embroiled in a nasty divorce. My mother packed everything she could into her flashy sports car. My sister and me, our photo albums, our favorite toys and clothes, our dog and our cat, and drove back to Seattle, where we moved in with my grandmother, the divorcee who'd already left the LDS church to forge her own life beyond the patriarchal grip. I must have struggled somewhat with the divorce and the fallout from my dad's addiction. What child wouldn't? But now, all my memories of those days are happy ones. Seattle was a new world, and my new school was rich with a diversity of friends from a variety of cultures. Every child I met had a unique way of looking at life, and I was fascinated by them all. No one told me any longer that I was a bad girl if I didn't play with dolls. In fact, when my second grade teacher asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, I promptly answered, Not a mom, and she laughed joyfully and responded, Good for you for knowing that. My sister and I no longer had to go to church on Sundays unless we wanted to. Most of the time, we didn't want to, which meant I seldom had to wear dresses anymore. My self-expression flourished. I looked more like a boy than ever, and though I was too old for pretending to be characters for movies or books, I did adopt a masculine nickname, and no one batted an eye at its use. If I'd lived my childhood in the 21st century, I would have been correctly identified as a gender-fluid or non-binary child. I might even have been encouraged to consider whether I was transgender. I knew I wasn't a boy, however. I was a girl who was plenty girl enough, exactly as I was, without a speck of femininity in me. If other people couldn't understand that, well, that was no concern of mine. In the late 80s, the only word anyone could find to describe me was tomboy, and I wore that label with pride. It was the first time any descriptor fit me in all my life. The divorce was chaotic, as divorces tend to be, though my mom and grandma worked hard to keep us as sheltered as they could from the proceedings. Mom wanted my sister and me to maintain positive feelings for our dad and his side of the family, including the LDS faith we'd been born into. 
We spent our summers in Idaho with our Mormon family, where I did my best to play the part of a proper girl, as much as I could make myself comply. On summer days, midweek, with the dreaded Sundays far behind and far ahead, my dad would drive me out to a lone, faded country store to buy a candy bar and a soda. Away from the watchful eyes of the rest of our family, we could both be ourselves for a little while. He would crank the window down and blast his rock music, and his longish hair would blow in a wind that smelled of dry, hot dust from the potato fields. I would make crass jokes and outrageous observations and generally allow myself to be a rough, unfeminine thing. Despite the summers my sister and I spent back among the fold, my father's side of the family never really reconciled themselves to my mother. The fact that she'd won full custody and was only allowing us to visit the family for our sake, not theirs, remained a sore spot with everyone. Sometimes our grandfather would lecture us about proper femininity, holding our mother up as an example of utterly failed womanhood. I'll never forget the time he said, You know, toward the end of their marriage, your mother refused to sleep with your father. To which my sister flatly responded, Good. This fear that our mother would corrupt our souls with her dangerous feminism was a real source of distress to my grandparents. They earnestly believed that we would be deprived of a fulfilling eternity if we weren't brought back to the straight and narrow, if we weren't taught how to be righteous women. That fear very nearly led them to commit a crime. Kidnapping. One morning, while my sister and I were waiting for our school bus a few blocks from our house, an unfamiliar car pulled to the curb. The passenger door swung open. My grandparents were inside, beckoning to us, promising to drive us to our school, trying to get us into that vehicle. They were our grandparents, but still we felt instinctively that we must not get into that car under any circumstances. As the school bus approached, they drove away, and that night, I lay awake for hours thinking about the incident, wondering why they'd driven from Rexburg all the way to Seattle, wondering how many days it had taken them to find our house, to stake out our bus stop, learn the lay of our neighborhood, memorize our morning routines. One might think... Between my rebellious parents and the upheaval of my childhood, I would have grown farther from my culture of origin as I entered my teen years. In fact, the opposite happened. I felt drawn towards the LDS faith, interested in scripture and the history of my church. I was beginning to gain some awareness, as young adults often do, of reality's complex and nuanced nature. I sensed the numinous standing just behind the mundane, and I was driven to seek and understand the spiritual world. I still staunchly refused to perform the least speck of femininity. That just wasn't my style. Yet all my friends knew I was a Mormon and respected my faith. I went to church often, though not every Sunday. I kept the word of wisdom, avoiding alcohol and all drugs, including caffeine. I made friends with other kids, like myself. Not only LDS youth from my ward, but Baptists and a handful of non-religious nerds who simply had no interest in the sex, drugs, booze trifecta of 1990s teenage life. But despite my careful avoidance of the standard teen pitfalls, I'd begun to struggle with my mental health, especially in my late teens. At the time, I feared I was doomed to become as troubled as my father was. Looking back from the perspective of middle age, I think the struggles I experienced then were not unusual. The teen years are hard on everyone. But I was frequently racked by anxiety to the point that I was sometimes debilitated by it. My relationship with my mother had deteriorated badly, and I was fighting without much success to discern some path into an independent, fulfilling future. But I could still sense that spark of the divine behind every ordinary thing. I thought if I could find the right way to tap into the spiritual source, I could ask it for guidance, and if I followed its advice, I would end up where I needed to be, 
where I could find happiness or at least relief from my constant mental struggles. I'd been raised to believe that there was a way to ask the divine for guidance and to receive a very personal and specific response, the patriarchal blessing, which could only be bestowed by a priesthood holding man of my church. There was just one problem for me. In the chaos of my parents' divorce, I hadn't been baptized, which usually occurs at age eight for Mormon children. Before I could receive my patriarchal blessing and learn exactly what God intended for my life, I had to obtain a baptism. And since I was technically an adult by that time, that meant I had to go through the discussions with two missionaries of the church. My missionaries were kind, fun boys only a year older than myself. We got along well, though I'm ashamed to admit I can't recall their names now. I do remember that one of them had red hair and a great laugh. We laughed often while we went through the discussions together, and they never passed a judgmental comment or even a curious glance at my boyishly short hair, my immodest tank tops, my oversized cargo pants from which the men's underwear I wore peeked out ostentatiously above the waistband. I asked them hard, cutting questions about the faith and its doctrines. They were always ready with a good answer. By the time our discussions were finished, I felt confident that I was making the right choice and making it from my heart, independent of my family's influence. I would become a member of the church because I felt it to be true, not because I'd been raised within the culture, and then I'd be able to ask the divine source for guidance to lead me out of this disturbing darkness that had drawn in around me. I asked my mother's friend Lyle to baptize me. He and his family had been a bulwark to mine during the divorce and after while my mother had struggled to get back on her own two feet. And after Lyle immersed me in the holy baptismal waters, I asked him to administer my patriarchal blessing. A couple of days after my baptism, Lyle called me to make the arrangements. He would fast and pray, and when God had told him what my destiny was to be, he would come to my house and deliver the blessing. The hour arrived. My sister placed a chair in the middle of our living room. I sat and bowed my head in reverent prayer. Lyle placed both his hands on my head and began to pray, reciting my full name and then speaking the words God had given him. The words meant just for me. You will raise your children in the church, Lyle said. I felt the room jolt around me, felt reality slide into a strange, dissipating haze. I didn't raise my head, but it cost me some effort to hold still and keep quiet. I don't remember anything else, Lyle said during the blessing. This is an unusual experience in the LDS faith, for this kind of prayer is recorded carefully, word for word, and referenced throughout one's life. A patriarchal blessing is a sacred thing because it's supposed to be a personal thing, because the one who bestows, a holder of the holy priesthood, asks God in all earnestness to speak directly to the heart of the individual who receives the message. How could God not know that I wanted no part of motherhood? If you were reading The Ensign or another church publication, this story would end with my becoming a mother. With a proclamation that God knew best after all, I was destined to raise a righteous family within the church, just as my patriarchal blessing specified. I would tell you that I found fulfillment at last within the clearly defined boundaries of femininity, that indeed I hadn't even known true happiness at all until I put aside my selfish desires and accepted my role as mother and wife. But this isn't the ensign, and I am not a faithful Mormon. This story has a different ending. I knew myself then, at age 19, as surely as I know myself now, as surely as I knew myself at age two when I'd looked down in quiet horror at the baby doll in the cradle. I was not going to be a mother. 
I didn't care what any man of the church said. I didn't even care what God himself said. I had made up my mind, yet somehow, God hadn't got the message. I had received a patriarchal blessing meant for some other woman, and the implications of that fact shook my faith, indeed my very concept of reality, to its core. The mix-up could mean only one of two things. Either God wasn't all-knowing, or the whole religion, perhaps every religion, was too flawed by human invention to be true. Every fiber of my newly baptized self rejected those thoughts. I had only just committed to this faith. It couldn't fall apart so soon. I moved out of my mother's house to a town where there was no LDS church. I would have had to drive 20 miles each way to attend church, and I didn't have enough gas money for that. But nevertheless, my commitment to the religion was stronger than ever. I read my quad from cover to cover, the complete LDS scriptures, including the Holy Bible and the Book of Mormon, pouring and praying over every chapter and verse. When I'd finished the whole thing, the essential question remained, how could an all-knowing God not know me? So I read it all again, concentrating harder, praying with more diligence, struggling to fit the pieces of this puzzle together, to find within my religion an image of a God who saw me clearly, who loved and accepted me as I was. Between the ages of 19 and 23, I read the entire quad six times. But still, I found no God within its pages that made sense, given what I knew about myself, given what I knew was the truth. These years of scriptural study weren't without their benefit. I found comfort and justification in the words of 2 Nephi chapter 2, where Lehi says to his son Jacob, for it must needs be that there is an opposition in all things. If not so, righteousness could not be brought to pass, neither wickedness, neither holiness nor misery, neither good nor bad. Wherefore, all things must needs be compounded in one. Those words didn't seem to say that strict singularities or binaries were righteous. Indeed, I read in that scripture the opposite, an acknowledgement of the sacred in anything which was both and neither at once. In those words, I found the holiness of myself. I was not a perfect woman, not even close. I was masculine and feminine, compounded in one, and without rare precious contradictions like myself, nothing could come to be. Second Nephi continues, And if ye say there is no law, ye shall also say there is no sin, if ye shall say there is no sin, ye shall say there is no righteousness. And if there be no righteousness nor happiness, there be no punishment nor misery. And if these things are not, there is no God. I was engaged to my first husband when I was far too young, as is tradition for good Mormon girls. He wasn't LDS, but I still was, or so I told myself. Shortly after our engagement, I came home from work to find my fiancé sitting stiffly on the couch, looking lost and uncomfortable, he told me I needed to call my mother right away. Tearfully, Mom told me that my dad had died. The pressure of perfection, of fitting himself into the small mold God had made for him, had proved too much in the end. He was 49 years old. After I received the news, I shut myself in my bedroom and knelt to pray. No prayer came, however. I sensed an emptiness all around me, but it wasn't a hostile expanse. It was full of memories of my father. Those drives to the dusty old store for candy bars, with the tape deck in his car blaring Nirvana, 
with the wind blowing his dangerously long hair. I tried to pray, and instead I dwelt again in memory, this time of a wheat field in Idaho, my father and myself walking in parallel furrows with a crop ripening between us. He stripped kernels of wheat from a tassel, rubbed them between his palms. He told me, God said I will separate the wheat from the chaff, like this. He blew into his palm, and the golden chaff flew off across the field, dazzling and bright in the summer sun. I rose up from my knees with my prayers unsaid. I was fine with the silence, the empty space where my faith had been. It had already left me, I realized, when I'd sat in that chair with the hands of a priesthood holder on my head, when I'd heard the words of a blessing meant for some other woman. In the privacy of my room, alone with a grief that was both as fresh and as old as I was, I knew I had become exactly what my family had feared I would be. The wrong kind of woman. One who could walk in strength beyond the boundaries of her faith. I'd been raised to believe that disobedience to God's law, rejection of God's precise and holy order, would lead me only to sorrow. I felt sorrow for my father, of course, but none for myself. Myself was free. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please follow the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review, which helps tickle that algorithm so I can find more curious weirdos like you. Be sure to read Carrie's latest book, I Spoke to You in Silence. It is truly excellent and contains some of the finest essays you'll ever read. Give Carrie a follow on Twitter, Mastodon, or Post. You can find her at S-W-I-L-U-A on all platforms. And if you want more from the inside of my head, or if you're intrigued by all this weird Mormon stuff, go read my novel, The Prophet's Wife, because it's the best thing I've ever made, and I really want it to find the people who will appreciate it. Sound collage components were taken from the following YouTube channels. Movie Clips, A Fusco, Jerry Jeremiah Films, and hard-to-find Mormon videos. The musical interlude was Masculine Women, Feminine Men by the Savoy Havana Band in the public domain. Additional music included the Overture to the Ten Commandments by Elmer Bernstein. Outro music is Running the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. And until next time, do good magic and make good worlds.